1: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest Fest for January 17th, 2019, the Pocketing Your Notes edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine is on the West Coast, which means it's hella early, as you Californians say, wherever you are, Emily.
2: Now I'm here for two days, I'll be a Californian. Exactly. It is really early, it's true. But here we are, ready to go.
3: Can you tell us the nature of your visit to the West Coast?
2: I am visiting the great Stanford University to do some reporting for um, an upcoming New York Times Magazine article. I I really hope it is an upcoming New York Times (laughs) Magazine article. There are a lot of really smart people at Stanford. That's my big discovery.
3: Oh, yeah.
1: That other voice, of course, is John Dickerson of CBS This Morning, who's in New York. Hi,
3: David. Sorry to just clamber in in the middle of your carefully orchestrated opening.
1: Are you done now? Can we (laughs) get the show going? On this week's show... The shutdown continues. The State of the Union is in doubt. How is this crazy situation going to resolve itself? Then, the extraordinary revelation that the FBI opened a counterintelligence investigation to determine if the president was acting on behalf of Russia, and that it was not even the most disturbing news about Russia and Trump this week, I would argue. Maybe not even the second most disturbing news about Russia and Trump this week. Then the House of Representatives moves to dissociate itself from Steve King. Even Republicans are moving to dissociate themselves from Steve King. Why now? What did he do? Why did it take so long? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, dear GabFest listeners, those of you who are going to be in D.C. or near D.C. on Wednesday, March 27th, we are going to do a live show at the Lincoln Theater that night. Go to slate.com slash live for information and tickets. And it is going to be a special show. We're going to do our regular great Gab Fest of the week, but you're going to get a, a preview, an advanced look at Emily's fantastic new book, Charged, The New Movement to Transform American Prosecution and Mass Incarceration. It's going to be two-week early preview. She's going to talk about the book, and she will sign your book. So join us on March 27th at the Lincoln Theater, slate.com live, to see the show and to support Emily.
2: It's my book kickoff. I'm totally excited for it. Wow. Wow. Doing a better job oh, of really selling the it yeah. like, since last week. I was all nervous about it, but now I'm totally excited that that's uh, my first kick off. Yeah, exactly. There we
3: go. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday.
1: <laughs> the president called back 50,000 federal employees to work without pay, including more air traffic controllers, some people in the IRS, some people to to do issue permits for offshore drilling. Of all things, these are people who were not deemed essential, but because the shutdown is dragging on and on, the president was like, screw it, they're essential. I want this to be done. We're not going to pay them. They can come do their work. The shutdown now in nearing uh, four weeks long, as we tape, is a total mess. Nothing is happening. We have government workers who are truly starting to suffer. They've lost millions and millions and millions of dollars in pay. We have people who receive federal benefits, whether housing benefits or food stamp benefits, who have lost or at risk of losing necessary funding for their lives. We have the first time in American history that we're not paying members of the military to serve. The Coast Guard is not being paid right now, yet has to interdict on our borders. TSA workers are frustrated air traffic controllers. I saw the head of the air traffic control organization saying that she believes that flights are less safe now because air traffic controllers are working on the at the edge. Meanwhile, a federal judge has declined to give federal workers who are being forced to work without pay the right not to work. But if this continues too long, I think we can get ready to hear about involuntary servitude. And then we have the news, of course, that Nancy Pelosi has essentially rescinded, declined to invite the President to the House to give his State of the Union address, citing the fact that security, Security forces, security uh, necessary is, will be stretched because these people are working without pay. And then before I, before I get to John Emily, I just want to close with this amazing example of how screwed up the shutdown is that I read in, in uh, one of the articles about it. So the White House has to notify these 800,000 people that they cannot – that would not be paid. And so they made an initial notification. They have to make another notification again now that they're going to be not paid again. But agency officials do not know how to notify their employees, some of whom are working outposts around the globe. They cannot email these workers because the employees are not allowed to check their work email during a shutdown. The OMB held a conference call with a number of agencies Tuesday to to discuss how to proceed but could not come up with a solution. One idea was to send a certified letter to 800,000 employees. But because of the shutdown, the agencies lack the money to pay for the postage. It's insane, John Dickerson. That was a question.
3: (sighs) (laughs) Yes, it is insane, David. And there we have our there we have our our ending. Um, you know, and then th- Thursday morning there were some soundings outside of the White House. Maggie Haberman wrote in the New York Times that the president privately said we're getting killed, and that he's feeling pressure for this. Um, but then there's also, you know, reporting that says he's feeling pressure, but he's not changing his position. Um, and we should note that the, the the polling is pretty clear here on um, where the country is. The Pew Research Center did a very thorough uh, examination, and the people who disapprove of doing significant more funding to a, a border wall, it's eighteen points deficit between those who are against it uh, versus those who are for it. so if you ha- if you were supporting a policy that was eighteen points underwater, usually you would get away from it. Usually, you would go talk about something else. In this case, And I've been trying to think through how to say this, and I think this is fair, which is that the president is already – I know I've kind of said this on the show before, but he's already taking emergency measures, and the emergency measures is to um, uh, put federal workers through this. For the purposes of um, gaining leverage to uh, get his policy about the wall to be put forward, so I mean I think to think about that in those terms is important because it's not only that he is a, has an unpopular policy here though, but it's not he doesn't just hold an unpopular policy. He is choosing to to have all of this um, these ramifications in the furtherance of that policy. That's where we are, and I don't know where we're going from there,
1: Emily. Nancy Pelosi has called for rescheduling the State of the Union, either to have the president submit in writing or to only give it after this shutdown has passed. Is that a legit move or is that just pure theatrics or maybe both?
2: I kind of think both. I mean, I think it's a way for Pelosi to signal that she just doesn't need Trump. And I mean, surely it plays well with the Democratic base to, you know, basically like diss him in this way. I can't imagine that we can't muster the security forces for the state of the union. Um, On the other hand, the government's really strained right now and it's not as if it has to happen on that particular day and to allow Trump to um, continue uh, as if everything is um, normal when it's really not, you know, you can see why Pelosi would want to call attention to the abnormality of the situation and just kind of shake up the political dynamic. Um, John, what did you think of that move by Pelosi?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a power response that has the patina uh, or has the cover of being legitimate by the rules of the president's own arguments for why this shutdown is worth it. The president says there's an emergency. Um, and if the emergency um, is such a, if there's such a big emergency, then we can't afford the um to to have the security for the state of the union. Um so she's using his own kind of argument against him. It's either an emergency or it's not having the government shut down. If it looks like basically everything can kind of go along as normal, then the pressure on him to cave lessens and and I think she wisely makes the assumption that for him one of the he has not so far shown too much um attention to the pressure of people not having their paychecks, the small business loans not going out. The White House this week reported that um, the economic impact estimate is twice as bad as they thought. A quarter or a half point of growth that may be now gone because of the four weeks of shutdown. That has not moved anything, but depriving the president uh, of a um, of a huge platform may kind of hit him where he lives. I want to just make one Quite a quick point about that. The president gave an Oval Office speech making the case in the biggest platform traditionally available for a president for his policy. His numbers went backwards. The only other times that's happened are things where, like, Gerald Ford gave an Oval Office address about pardoning Nixon. And of course, that was when he announced that he'd done it and people revolted. And so his numbers went backwards. But you've got to go back to Ford and Nixon and Vietnam to have a situation where a president gives an Oval Office address, gets a basically gets to hit the ball off the tee as far as he you know possibly can. And his numbers get worse.
1: There is this notion circulating in Trump world, Emily, that this whole uh, shutdown. OK, Yes. There are clearly political political damage that the Trump administration is bearing, but it's good because it's shrinking the government. It's hurting the Democrats who work for the government, and it's not hurting the people who vote for Trump and really care about Trump. And that and that it's that it makes an ideological point that will be good in the long run. Do you do you think that is motivating uh, the desire to continue the shutdown?
2: I mean, I hope not because it just doesn't seem like. A good rationale. But I mean, uh, yeah, it's possible that that is what's going on. Although, honestly, it's really hard to tell. I mean, this doesn't feel like it has some kind of rational end game. It feels like a train that got started and Trump doesn't know how to get off it. And because the numbers are so good with the Republican base, he doesn't, there's nothing yet that's happened that is going to jolt him out of his, um, of the decision he's already made. Yeah, I don't know if it goes deeper than that.
1: What's going to do it? What's going to do it? I mean, you you can imagine that a that some kind of air tragedy mm-hmm. would would do it.
2: Yeah, or the not inspecting um, food. Right, someone gets sick or dies. Yeah, the non- but these I- are terrible. I was, terrible surpri- I was surprised
1: that didn't. Yeah, I was surprised that not inspecting food hasn't had more resonance. That that was the one I thought would be for sure evocative for me. Well, on John, the on, what, the, on the, what, the what what breaks the this still. Yeah, it's a it's a well uh,
3: good question. Let me do qu- quickly on the food thing. I think they basically brought in some workers and asked them to work without pay. So. I think the essential uh, food inspections um for the moment are taking place but there was a study out today or yesterday that said I think 463 people died of E coli last year basically one in 6 Americans are going to get foodborne some kind of very bad foodborne illness um the food inspection regime has been in crisis, even when everybody's at work and doing their jobs and doing part of the job is not just monitoring what's happening in the moment, but trying to think creatively about how to help a situation that clearly is in dire shape. Well, none of that's happening now. So I don't want to suggest that things are OK, but um, I think they've kind of they patched a little bit on, on that front. What What makes it happen? Well... I think you've got a couple of things. I th- I mean, you've got basically five sen- five Republican senators in the Senate who would vote with the Democrats and, and reopen the government. You'll start to get pressure from Republicans in the Senate. Mitch McConnell is interesting to watch because obviously having been at the center of negotiations in previous shutdowns, near shutdowns, uh, debt ceiling fights, he's been right in the thicket, and he, he knows how to make the deals. He's been completely out of the limelight on this. He's up for reelection in 2020. He's got a balance between... Um, well, he's got to balance a lot of different things, but he's not choosing to jump in the middle of this. He could. Um, and there could be, uh, basically, what could happen is that enough set Republican senators can say, look, your approval ratings, Mr. President, are at 37. And you may um, uh, you may think you can get on the right side of this, although 37 is as low in the Gallup poll as his numbers have been since last February. So he's trending at the bottom of his range. Um and, uh, you know, your, the spillover effect here is starting to um, damage the other Republicans, um, and that's going to be bad for, uh, bad for the party. So I guess that's one of the places where you could have this damage come in. Also, if this is a big, huge thing people can't forget, that it feels like, to me, could attach to um, lots of the other Trump chaos. And if at the end of the day this becomes the kind of thing where people think, gee— that was a huge waste of time with no planning, no strategy, and there was all of this damage done to economic growth and people's lives. I mean, people are not getting paid, and if 80% of the country lives paycheck to paycheck, there are people having to make awful decisions, and we report on them every morning. This could symbolically for certainly independents and some of the Republicans who voted for Trump just because they didn't like Hillary Clinton. This is the thing you talk about it once, and immediately it returns everybody to the feeling he was an incompetent president who couldn't who couldn't do his job.
2: And if you go back to the art of the deal, and that was how Trump sold himself um, to voters, this is like a completely failed episode of deal-making. And there are, you know, these stories of him walking out of the room, he doesn't seem deeply involved in the details of the negotiations by any means. How do you guys feel about the patches we keep hearing about? I mean, on the one hand, they're preventing harm to um, people... To you know, by by making sure that people can get their food stamps or that food is being inspected, they're staving off some of the worst um, outcomes of the shutdown. On the other hand, it's like as if the government is open when it's not really open, and of course, all these people are working without pay. I,
1: I think I approve of the idea that you can designate a bunch of people as essential and make them even even if they haven't been designated that way in the past. It does seem to me. Necessary that food be inspected, and it does seem to me uh, necessary that people get their tax refunds promptly it doesn't necessarily seem necessary that people get their oil leases processed, but we can leave that so i I think I'm sympathetic to the idea that the, that the there's some discretion about who who's designated as essential and what what work is carried on on the other hand it is it's clear like if someone works one day without pay, that's okay if someone works probably a week without pay. That's probably okay. If someone works 10 years without pay, we know that's not okay. So there is so, clearly a point at which it, become, it goes from being okay for people to be working without pay to make sure the government work gets done to not okay. And I, and I suspect we're almost at that point. No, I assume when you're not, saying it that is, it's okay,
2: it, even for a day or a week, you're assuming people will get paid in the end.
1: Well, there's a, a law was passed that said they will get paid in the end. Not the contractors, but federal employees will get their back Jr. Yeah, the,
3: the president just
1: signed something. I don't know how, how many it covers, but one thing— Which is actually kind of ridiculous. I actually don't think—I'm not even—that, That to me, seemed pretty cavalier. I mean, I guess they have to pass a bill like that, but, you know, the work's not getting done.
2: Well, but the people who are showing up for work, they should get paid in yes, the end. Yes, yeah, you're right.
1: Especially, you're right, right. and you don't want TSA agents
3: uh, feeling— super aggrieved and not doing their job because they're never going to get paid for it.
2: Right. I mean, that's I, another thing. The TSA agents aren't legally allowed to strike, but if they really step out of work and the airports, you know, aren't functioning, I feel like that's a crisis point. We haven't quite hit yet.
3: I was... Uh, the Whistle Stop this week is a, is the first episode in looking at the, at the shutdowns of 1995, um, and two things struck me relative to the one we have right now. First of all, in 1995, Clinton and Gingrich were having a graduate-level debate about the role of government in American life, Um, and it was about, you know, whether the safety net had been, from Clinton's perspective, too undermined by the Reagan uh, years, and from Gingrich's perspective, it was the safety net that was leading to to the problem with welfare and uh, poverty in America. Huge discussions about fundamental issues in American life. And the the situation here, while it's incredibly... um, fraught and people are emotional about uh, the way in which the wall is discussed, not as wall uh, qua wall, but wall as a symbol for a mindset about people who are um, of color or a whole host of other issues, it still is a single, the president is is choosing to pursue this policy for a single thing. Um, it's felt uh, significantly smaller than the debates we had in 1995. And then also one other thing, which is that Gingrich, when he got into that debate, it was not crazy to think that he had the country behind him. They had just regained control of the House for the first time uh, in more than 40 years. They'd picked up 52 seats and then seven seats in the Senate. He overplayed his, his, his hand, but he had every reason to think that the country might be with him. The president in this case is facing a massive rebuke in the House races. Um, the, the country has spoken recently, and they are not buying what he's selling, and yet he continues to— Pursue this policy in in support of a a policy that's 18 points underwater.
1: Emily, last word on this, just going to the, the legal question here. At what point will a court be willing to step in and say people cannot work under these conditions or they are entitled not to work under these conditions? Is there any point at which they can step in and say that?
2: That's a really good question. I don't remember hearing about court cases in the past that challenged the shutdown. But I mean, obviously, when you think of the longer term of this continuing on, there has to be some moment where people can't be expected to keep working without pay. I mean, I suppose they can just walk off the job um, and quit. But um, yeah, I'm not quite sure what the lawsuit would be. But I imagine someone is thinking about it.
1: Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. You can go to slate.com slash GabFest to become a member today. And today we have a special guest. Emily's out at Stanford, and she's going to be joined by Stanford law professor Nate Persley to talk about the Trump administration's plan to add a citizenship question to the census and a federal judge's stinging rebuke of that plan this week in a court case.
2: That court case is in New York City.
1: In New York City. So again, go to slate.com slash GapFest Plus to become a member today. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Just to highlight the four biggest pieces of Russia, Trump, Mueller news, of the week. And let it be said, in any other administration, probably the sixth and seventh biggest pieces of Russian news this week would have been themselves ground for a Pulitzer Prize winning investigation, possibly impeachment. But so have the standards shifted. But in those first four big pieces of news, it was revealed this week that one, the FBI, back in the early days of the Trump administration, opened a counterintelligence investigation into whether President Trump was working to advance Russian interests. Two, that President Trump has had five private meetings with Vladimir Putin and has made active efforts to ensure no records were taken of these meetings, and in one case even confiscated the interpreter's notes, which were the only records of the meeting. Three, presidential lawyer Rudy Giuliani said on CNN that he essentially conceded that people in the Trump campaign colluded with Russia. He said, he, when, he, when he said there was no collusion, he just said all he was saying that Trump didn't collude, which is people took as an implicit concession that, yeah, people around him may have colluded. And fourth, for soon to be confirmed, Attorney General Bill Barr said very nice things about Mueller personally, said he wouldn't fire him without a cause, but did not commit to releasing Mueller's report to the public or even to Congress. So, Emily, I... I I because I'm slightly sleep deprived. I didn't really understand why the news of the counterintelligence investigation was so important. Why? Why was it important? Well,
2: there was like a split over whether it was like a huge deal or a nothing burger, right?
1: Well, can you explain that split?
2: Uh, <laughs> yes, I just wanted you to confirm, but no, <laughs> apparently not. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So on the one hand, we have known for a long time that counterintelligence is part of the Mueller investigation and that obviously Mueller has been investigating Trump for obstruction of justice. And... We also knew that the whole point and scope of the investigation is about what the Russians did to try to interfere with the 2016 election. Um, And there's been lots of kind of assumption and, you know, pretty well-grounded speculation that one of the questions is whether Trump in some way, you know, is compromised and Russia has something on him. We've talked a lot about that. I think the reason this news mattered was that it showed that before before Mueller showed up, the FBI had this deep concern about Trump and Russia in the wake of Comey being fired. It's a short period of time because Mueller gets appointed pretty quickly, but the FBI on its own deciding to treat the president as suspect and you know potentially a Russian asset in this way that is shocking kind of on its own, even though when you put it into the fabric of what we already knew, it also seems sort of obvious, like, of course, but we hadn't had it confirmed before.
3: It's hard. It is hard to um, know where to pick up on this. and to, But I'm uh, still trying to catch up with what Rudy Giuliani said, by the way, in defense of the president. I mean, this is the person who's supposed to be helping yeah. the president. To suggest that he is moving the goalposts is to do injury to that metaphor. I mean, we're not even playing the same game anymore. Remember where we started with this, which was that the very idea that anyone in the Trump campaign, high, low, indifferent or otherwise, was in contact with anyone from Russia for any purpose, was once considered such an offensive thing to suggest that it should not even be asked by journalists. OK, that was where they used to be. Now in a variety of different places they have continued to claim that, that that there was no connection then that was untenable now basically Rudy Giuliani is saying well sure there might have been collusion uh, but it wasn't um it wasn't the president and that was the that's really what their position was so that's not what their position was particularly Giuliani's he had said that no one at senior levels of the campaign was involved so obviously if Paul Manafort was involved In addition to Don Jr. going to the meeting and Jared Kushner going to the meeting with somebody who was coming promising dirt from the Russian government on on Hillary Clinton, it almost isn't worth restating all of these things, except to say that um, it is extraordinary for somebody who is defending the president to go out and make a statement like that, given where we have been. Um, And so it's just it's almost too big. I mean I know it represents a kind of a pattern of the moving of the goalposts um but I just kind of want to say a lot of words to give you a sense of how um extraordinary it still is it also deprives some of the president's defenders like Lindsey Graham who has repeatedly said there's been no collusion well if Rudy Giuliani is now saying that only applies to the president himself then then really Lindsey Graham can't can't go around saying that um And and it seems to me, Sarah's saying, I mean, they can continue to say it, but when they're undermined by the president's actual lawyer. um, So I think that's actually um, a big deal.
2: Can I say some more words about this? Because I agree it's a big deal. Um, Steve Vladek, who's a law professor at the University of Texas, had a tweet last night where he said, progression, one, no contact with the Russians, two, no election related contact with the Russians, three, no unlawful contact with the Russians, four, no collusion with the Russians, five. Even if there was collusion, it's not illegal. Six, Donald Trump didn't collude himself. Like, we really have moved um, a long way here. Um, I would argue, however, um, and somebody else, and I can't remember who it was, made this point I think it was Josie Duffy Rice on Twitter last night, that if, you know, you think of Giuliani as simply a lawyer protecting his client's interest, maybe what he said was like a good lawyer move outside of the context of the presidency. If you're just trying to keep your guy from being indicted and out of jail, then you throw everybody else under the bus.
1: But it's <laughs> right. but it's also the case. I mean, the other notable fact I would say about that progression that you described there, or maybe it's a regression you described there, Emily, is that... <laughs> The mood of the country and the country's attitude about this has not changed at all. I don't think that 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 there are notably more people who are now crazed for impeachment or who are now demanding Trump's resignation than there were at the beginning of it. It's it it's I think an incredibly effective strategy, perhaps on the trump administration's part to have slow walked this. I mean the theory usually is let everything get out quickly first, cleared up, and move on the The dragging nature of it the the massive length of it the the way they have you know at every point mounted a new weak defense, allowed it to be overrun, and then mounted another one a hundred yards back they're not in worse shape than they were at the beginning, so sure it's it's uh you know, they've been exposed as liars and probably criminals, but are they politically more damaged? I don't know that they are.
3: One thing I've been trying to think through is the toxicity of being aligned with something that's getting all the more crazy. Um, And we'll get to this in the Steve King um, conversation. But one of the things when you talk to Republican officials who think about speaking out against the president, and remember, he's still quite, he's very popular in his own party. um, And we see tactically how that plays out when you see, Mitch McConnell not um doing what he could do to try and end the shutdown because he's he's staying on the president's team. At some point if the the entire Trump uh set of ex- set of explanations collapses, the members of his party who who supported him and um and stuck with him and all of that, they will they are going to pay some kind of uh price. Largely they haven't, only a few have, but they will it could cause them to start making some independent decisions. With each new thing in this, and that could change the political dynamic.
1: Can we uh, change the subject slightly to the strange news about Trump and Putin's meetings, which is also, of course, you know, in the in the penumbra of this question of whether Trump is working on behalf of Russian interests? So it came out that that Trump has had these five meetings with Putin, five private meetings with Putin, essentially, and he has made really extensive efforts to make sure that other people, including his closest aides, do not know what was discussed. And in one case, even went so far as to pocket the notes of the translator. I I mean, I I almost don't even know what to say. It just is so odd. You know, I guess one, one explanation could be, well, he comes from a world of business. And in a world of business, it's true, you tend not to try to keep extensive documentation of the deals you're doing so that you don't you know, you don't lock yourself in so that when litigation comes, you don't find yourself in trouble. So maybe that's, it's, it's just his general way of secrecy about him. But it's, it's...
2: Although, David, if you were going to go with that explanation, wouldn't you expect him to do the same with other well, meetings was, with world that's leaders? That's the question. Like, if it's specific yes, to Putin, yeah, that yeah. explanation that's doesn't exactly. make any sense. No, no, that,
1: was, that was my next question, which is, do we, have we found out yet whether when he's meeting with Xi Jinping, or when he's meeting with, with the Prime Minister of India, does he do the same thing? I don't know. Do we know that yet?
2: No one has said he does. I mean, I suppose no it's has, possible.
3: Yeah, no one has has uh, suggested that. But I mean, that's the you, you're looking for, which is a completely reasonable thing to do. To look for, um, as you try to, you know, categorize all the possible reasons for this. What's the most benign uh, interpretation of this? He had already had some of his conversations with the Russian ambassador and foreign minister in the Oval Office that was leaked. You will remember this is when he let them in on some Israeli intelligence that he wasn't supposed to. Um, um, so, you know, he might feel like he was burned there and he doesn't want to be burned again. Now, what's also an interesting part of this is one of the key meetings, I believe it was the one in Germany, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was there. So uh, Tillerson has not talked about what, what happened at that meeting, but there is another source who is able to be interviewed about that meeting. And the House Democrats are thinking about subpoenaing the interpreter and you wonder, I don't know whether Mueller would have cause to do that. That's – you know there are ways that you can find out what, what happened and I would be very interested to see – it seems to me the House can make a national security case for why it would be worth subpoenaing the interpreter.
2: Right, although there will certainly be a claim of executive privilege about that, right? And Mm -hmm. we're going to see these clashes repeatedly in the coming months about the subpoena power of the House and what the White House does and doesn't have to turn over. It's not like the House asking for something means that the House is going to just get it.
1: Sure.
3: Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
1: I mean, it's it's quite disturbing that the staff of the White House is so ineffectual and so weak that they are unable— to protect this this essential national security interest of having the president's words documented and, and maintained. Because you think about the Secret Service. If the Secret Service tells the president, you know, don't get on this flight now, the president doesn't get on the flight. The president will heed the Secret Service. I think when it comes to security issues – Presidents are incredibly respectful of the Secret Service's determination and judgment and, and counsel. It's disturbing that here are these other people who are experts, who have experience, who are, speak for the national interests of the country, and the president just doesn't listen to them. Or that they don't ex- exert themselves to tell him, you have to have somebody in these meetings. You have to record them. We have to know what's happening. It's a sign of, I mean, your point about incompetence, it's a sign of how incredibly incompetent and careless this government is.
3: And also, when you go back to the the business analogy, the reason that to me, it seems, breaks down is that any business uh, executive who has been a part of a huge organization, which Trump wasn't, I mean, his was a small, uh, it was maybe large in not dollars, but was a small organizational structure if you've been in charge of a large organizational structure, you know that decision-making can't happen in the mind of one person. And in fact, all of the, the business um, – kind of current business thinking now about teams really accentuates this. Which And so it's it's leaving aside the national security implications. It's just a super disordered way to operate a presidency. Jack Kennedy in 1961 in Vienna met with Khrushchev and only wanted the interpreters to be there. He wanted no aides in the room. That was to create a condition where he could have a kind of heart-to-heart with Khrushchev, who ended up kind of stealing his lunch in that meeting. But he didn't do it for the purposes of keeping everybody else out in the larger discussion. So when the meeting breaks, he goes and talks to everybody about what happened so that they can have an aligned uh, foreign policy that benefits from the best minds being able to put their brains on the on on the situation as it stands um so just from a purely kind of proper way to run a railroad um this is uh, this is incredibly disordered and it means that it's very possible that the administration and the person leading it are are operating at basically total cross purposes on a key geopolitical matter
2: it's also just really strange like especially because Trump knows that russia and russian interference are the subject of an investigation that there is a swirl of suspicion and questions around him and his relationship with putin so it just seems to be quite provocative um i mean i suppose he trump could have thought that no one would ever found out find out that we didn't have any record of these meetings but it, it's a political risk that he has taken and it yeah. just makes me deeply wonder why
1: i um I thought you just said a squirrel. Yeah, although it's around. that's fine, squirrel. Right, excited for a squirrel <laughs> of confusion. <laughs> like squirrel Most squirrels well, look. Well,
2: squirrely—the adjective kind of fits in that sentence, right?
1: Speaking
3: of the squirrel of confusion, just um, you know, the, when the president makes more decisions based on his own interests, this is going a little bit back to your argument about Giuliani, David. When he's making decisions based on his own interests and not the country's, that may be his intent, but we are all hooked. Our wagon wheel is still all hooked up to him. He's the president of the United States. And if he starts to make decisions to for self-preservation, those could very well be either at odds with his role as the president or at the very least putting the country in a position that uh, he's steward of himself, not steward of the office. Um, and that, the more pressure that gets put on him, Presumably, that puts his stewardship role in greater danger and greater pressure.
1: That is very well said, John. I want to close Indeed. actually with one one question to you, Emily, which is uh, Bill Barr up testifying before the Senate for his confirmation to in order to win confirmation as Attorney General. What did you make of his point that he would not necessarily re- release the Mueller report to the public? And, I mean, he was basically signaling he's not going to release it to the public or to Congress or he's going to try not to. Why Why do you think he said that and does that set up a, a significant fight, do you think, or is he just automatically going to win that?
2: I found this whole thing confusing because he started off by saying that he wanted to be as transparent as possible and he understood that it was important for the public to know – what the investigation found. And then you're right, there was this kind of wiggling and weaseling out of the idea of sharing it. I mean, there is this two part process where Mueller makes a report to the attorney general, and then the attorney general reports out to Congress. And it's not clear that uh, Barr would have to, uh, if he is attorney general, would have to share everything in Mueller's underlying report to him with the Congress and with the public. And it felt to me like he was going as far as he could to reassure Democrats and maybe some Republicans who want to make sure the Mueller investigation is completed, that there's going to be this incredible hunger and appetite, obviously, for the every detail of Mueller's findings. And the fact that Barr wouldn't commit himself to necessarily releasing all that information, it's dismaying. It should factor into the confirmation vote and to how we think of his role. I mean, the other thing about Barr that I just cannot square in my own head is during the hearings, and of course, this made perfect political sense, but he went out of his way to talk about how fair-minded he thought Mueller was. No, Mueller wouldn't engage in a witch hunt. They're good friends, yada, yada. Over the summer, he wrote this like apoplectic memo about Mueller that assumed the worst of him and his investigation in ways that did not at all make room for the notion this is a fair-minded guy I've known forever who's a friend of mine, and I just like give him the benefit of the doubt. Now, maybe Barr wrote that memo because he was auditioning for this particular job, or a job like it, when Senator Pat Lay suggested that. Barr called it ridiculous. But I just can't figure out how the author of that memo is um, seeming, how, how I'm supposed to take at face value Barr's remarks now about his faith in Mueller.
1: Steve King, the Republican Congressman from Iowa, is being drummed out of polite society here in Washington. King said to The New York Times in an interview, quote, "White nationalist, white supremacist, Western civilization. How did that language become offensive?" And that that statement prompted a storm of anger and and uh, fleeing from fleeing away from him, both from Democrats and from those in his own party. The Republican Party joined with Democrats in the House to rebuke him with a House initiative condemning white supremacy 424 to 1, which even King himself voted for. Uh, Republican minority leader Kevin McCarthy stripped King of his committee assignments, his very excellent committee assignments. Mitch McConnell and Mitt Romney both encouraged King to resign. Meanwhile, Democrats are trying to decide whether they should push for a censure vote or not push for a censure vote. I think the the argument for it is that King is a loathsome, reprehensible figure and he should be censured. The argument against it is that it sets up this precedent that you can be censured by the House for perfectly uh, legal speech, legal if offensive speech, and that's a bad precedent to set. So I think the debate around King is really, A, what took so long, and B, is he anomalous in the GOP and in the conservative movement? Or does he in fact, is, is, is this a little bit of protesting too much, uh, but from Republicans, given how much they're tolerating of this kind of language from the president and from many, many others, either within official Republican Party structure, or who are strong supporters of Republican candidates. So, John, why, why now? Why is it that now is the moment that the even Republicans feel they have to distance themselves from this guy? Who's been who's been very popular and and much supported and and you know won re-election easily until this past election?
3: Yeah, won re-election easily, and who the Republican candidates running for president in 2016 um, sought to have endorse him, support him. Uh, you know, he was integral to the Republican primary process um, for people seeking to lead the lead the the party. And I think we should also say that he. The context in which this came out, the New York Times story, was one that was essentially saying before there was Donald Trump, there was Steve King. So the mindset approach and policies that are at the heart of the president's policy decision to um, push for border wall funding even to the point of shutting down the government, that's super closely associated with this person. And so now the House Republicans have decided that he is not – that he didn't just misspeak. Right, I think that's – as I've been thinking through this, let's say he said something dumb out loud, but there was no evidence in the rest of his background um, that uh, suggested that this was anything more than kind of a dumb slip-up or as he tried to argue for it, kind of he was making a rhetorical point. His words got kind of jumbled in the conversation. He didn't really mean this. They would have far less uh, standing to say this. But they made the decision that um, A, this was not just a random slip-up. B, that he was very likely to do it again in some context because the um, – is it the Overton window that's been opened by President Trump? But the, the things you can say and get around saying by saying, oh, don't be so politically correct, that is really opened. Um, and so he might say it again. And the Republican Party just lost almost 40 seats in the House in this last election is is has a very bad – reputation with some key constituency groups like suburban women who will be important for the presidential race and other races. And because of the president, you have a situation where the president's own behavior and actions is supported by the party and ratified because because there are people who don't want to split from the president. So you have in a situation where the president ran an ad suggesting basically that Democrats basically loved members of MS-13 and they showed this cop-killer in the ad. And it was uh, people found it so offensive that networks didn't run it. Um, Republicans spoke out about how offensive it was. The chairwoman of the Republican Party said there wasn't anything offensive about it at all. That's because she has to back up our president. So if you've got that kind of adhesion to actions being taken by the president, it leaves you much less room to have a Steve King in the world.
2: And yet, I mean, fundamentally, I think what's going on here is the sort of strain in the Republican Party, which Trump has completely embraced with Jeff Sessions and Steve Bannon um, were also spokespeople for this longing for a whiter America for an era in which the number of people of color in the country was not growing. A kind of vision of America as threatened and declining because it is going to be less white. And the Republicans can't really figure out how to disentangle themselves from that strain of thinking. I mean, certainly there are Republicans who disavow it, but it... In Trump, they basically have you know a champion of that way of thinking, and when you look at all of King's comments and remarks and you know endorsement of fringe right wing politicians, what you see, I think, is is that worldview, which is basically well, it's it's racist and it's also it is white supremacist and white nationalist, and so his willingness to bandy about those words, it's it's all of a piece, and and I don't think you can just you know kick Steve King off a couple of committees and say that you've taken care of it.
1: Right. Although I, he to go back to the Overton window, the Overton window is this idea that that you can shift the boundaries of what is acceptable conversation. And in shifting those boundaries, you basically change the terms of the debate and get policy gains. And, and it is certainly the case that King and I would say Steve Bannon and Donald Trump have been Overton window shifters on Race and and how we talk about immigration and how we talk about immigrants and they've been very effective and so so insofar as you can mute one of those voices and 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 say one of those voices is is not uh, legitimate and is and represents something that is anathema to the American idea that helps shift the window a little bit back towards the direction I think it should go, which is to be more welcoming and and not white supremacist supremacisting. So, so I don't think it's nothing to—I don't think it's nothing to, even at this late stage, to to stand up against him and say his values are anathema.
2: It, I don't think it's nothing. It's just not sufficient.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yes, uh, definitely not sufficient. Oh,
3: well, yeah. Also, I think we should be—I um, mean, think about it. We are 10 years, you know, almost to the day, of the inauguration of the first African-American president who was elected— By breaking through the system essentially in the Iowa caucuses and then won Iowa as a Democrat, which is a big deal. And you now have a very popular congressman from that state being sanctioned for being sound being sorry, the determination being made by Republicans that he's okay with white supremacy, which is the idea that white people by virtue of their skin color are better than other people. That's a quite a distance. Uh, in 10 years, and I think needs to be talked about in stark terms for all the reasons Emily said, and for the reasons I mean, this didn't just come out of nowhere. And right. regardless of how much you want to apportion blame to someone here or there or the other thing, the nature of the decision the Republicans made was that this was more than just a momentary slip up. Where do they put the origins of this? How do they wrestle with uh, what portion of his character? Because they've just made a conclusion. About him, this is more than skin deep. So, um, I think all of these things are. are um, I would be fascinated to hear people uh, from his party and who sanctioned him talk about this at more length.
1: Emily, there is this question about whether. Democrats in the House should try to censure him. There have only been, I think, six censures in this in a century. A censure is the the step the House takes that's just short of uh, expulsion. I believe the person censured has to stand in the well of the House and and uh, you know endure public shaming. And I, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's 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 slightly medieval. But there is this worry that it would set a really bad precedent and that it that makes censure a tool that will be used lightly. Do you think that? The Democrats should do it and or should they do what they seem to be doing, which is to uh, the, the House leadership seems to want to do, which is push this to the House, House Ethics Committee, which can then sort of slow walk it and people will forget it and it'll get bottled up. And, you know, in two months, it'll die.
2: I mean, I feel like there is a really strong argument for treating dehumanizing people and you know what john just said like if you have this mistaken notion you're really going to go out there and say that some people are better than other people because of their skin color it's okay to name that as distinct and as worthy of censure in a way that other kinds of behavior wouldn't i'm okay with that idea that this is distinct and disturbing in a way that demands a particular kind of response and that shaming is actually like perfectly appropriate I also don't feel super strongly about it. I mean, I just, I tend to not care about these ceremonial responses, and I think what really matters is what John was just arguing about, a reckoning within the Republican Party that goes deeper. I guess the other thing I wonder what you guys think about is this discussion in the press about using the word racist for King's remarks and some amount of what just seemed to me to be kind of like lily-livered, you know, wimpiness about not wanting to use this word. And I feel like this is this... I guess this has to do with the Overton window opening up on talking about prejudice, but it reminds me of the debate over using the word lie for Trump, because the notion here is like, well, we can't use the word racist unless we know what was in someone's heart. But if you have this pattern of comments and of endorsements and it just seems like it's all sitting out there, the evidence is really clear. It seems important to me to use the word racist in the same way that it can be important to use the word lie for Trump. That if you take away these clear words, you're actually obfuscating much more than you're offering, that you're just not doing your job as a journalist. And so I was it's, distressed by that.
1: Right. The, the I actually think that I, notion of what's in people's heart is just exactly the wrong thing to think about. In fact, the whole point about racism is that it doesn't you can be racist in your heart. You can go sit around your home and think, you know, pejorative thoughts about people of different races all you want, and that's fine. That's your right. That is a, all humans
2: It's not so great it's, actually. Well, well, like let him it's, it's not but great, gonna... but
1: all that is that's the nature of, of of what humans are. We're we're base creatures full full of vile thoughts and and vile beliefs. It's civilization That causes us to restrain those beliefs and it's the, you know, the rules and expectations of society that cause us to restrain those beliefs and not to not express them and act on them in ways that are cruel, offensive, dehumanizing. And so, you know. I I don't I couldn't care less what's in his heart. It is simply the public actions that matter, and so that to me is a is a non argument. It's it, it we 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 don't it does not matter what is in someone's heart. It only matters what they do because in everyone's heart is is a mix of things which are grotesque and noble. Uh,
3: uh, I thought you were going to come around to somewhere else. So I'm back with Emily on the I disagree on the what's in your heart. But I know that's also. I know you're slightly making a different point, but I'm down for actually no, it's not good to have those thoughts in your heart, though I do obviously believe that we're all uh But you don't know, but deeply who, knows? Flawed who people. knows
1: what's in who yeah. knows what's in I don't know what's in your heart. I don't know I I mean I know you pretty it's well, a, John. It's but, a, it's but, but, it's but I'm sure dark. They're, they're, um, they're dark things.
3: Let me yeah. let me uh, let me ask we, we, we come at this from another side, which is that I often felt that the word lie um was, uh, you know, my fear is always if you always have the n- knob turned up to 10, then um, you can't go beyond that, despite what they say in Spinal Tap. And so, you know, that some of those words got cheapened and were applied to gray areas, leaving it unavailable to for the punch it needs when it was truly, you know, when the president says he has talked to previous presidents who said the border wall was a good idea, that was a lie. He has actually not talked to them about that. And that's different than a kind of shading of something. In this case, it seems to me that you can use the word racist and racism because that's the the verdict that Republicans have rendered. If you take those who are not Steve King and those who feel like he should leave the office, that the people of uh, Iowa should be deprived of representation in these important committees that matter to them, these are, by the rules and standards they've created, big sanctions, a big deal. And so they have said that this is of this weight, they have decided, and if we're to treat them seriously, as they deserve to be treated seriously, then that word seems to me to be offered up, A, by their actions, and then B, going back to my previous point, requires the serious follow-ups that would, that would be necessary if they are to be taken seriously for having taken this action because they've made this determination. So I think that you have, you're, it's a classification. You're really just classifying what the Republicans have chosen to do in response to his actions.
1: No necessary. Void prohibited by law. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So let's go to cocktail chatter. When you have been censured by your family and have been exiled to the front porch of your house with just a drink and one companion, Emily, what will you be chattering to that one companion about?
2: I always feel like when you actually set this up and then I just say what I'm going to talk about, it's like humiliating (laughs) because it just sounds like the most boring cocktail party in the world. But I have more to say about William Barr at this um, erstwhile cocktail party. You know, we're so focused on the Mueller investigation and these kind of basic rule of law questions that we're not even talking about all the policy issues that the attorney general touches and influences. So Barr... um, Asked about the bipartisan criminal justice reform that Congress passed in January, said yes, he would implement it, but um, he believes that the you know harsh sentencing penalties of the 80s and 90s are responsible for the decline in crime. There's that is just there is little evidence to support that. I mean, they had some modest impact, small, but that as a characterization of why crime has declined in the United States is wrong and depressing. Barr also said that he thinks the criminal justice system is just as fair to black people as it is to white people. There is a lot of evidence showing precisely the opposite. He also aligns with Trump on the wall, on the border, on denouncing sanctuary cities, so basically on immigration. He may not bring quite the same excitement to this topic as Jeff Sessions, but I don't think we're going to see any kind of policy shift in the Justice Department for this. And I just want to remind uh, everyone that um, the Justice Department does all these other things that we need to be keeping an eye on.
1: John, what is your chatter? My chatter
3: is, uh, well, it's log rolling. I don't do this
1: much. Um I think <laughs> so you don't. much less than much less than I do.
3: Well, I we we finally ran a piece that um that I worked on last year in Charlottesville with Dave Matthews. When he was ending up his last tour in Charlottesville, I went down and talked to him about the 5 million dollars that he's giving, part of the 40 million dollars that he's given uh, over the course of his career to various charities, but in this case he's giving 5 million dollars to to basically try to jump start the low-cost housing process in Charlottesville. There are about 400 um, units in Charlottesville, all in need of significant repair. Buildings with elevators that don't work, the counters and, and um, kitchen areas are uh, are really in, in rough shape. There are all, you know, people living there, some of whom that, that I talked to, Joy Johnson and Audrey Oliver, who are, have been working for 20 years to try to get these improvements made. And the $5 million is hopefully going to kick off a new building area, which they can then move some residents into, demolish and rebuild the houses that they're in now. And it was um, a conversation about that good work, but then also about obviously what happened in Charlottesville, the city that gave him his birth in the world of music, and his reflections having grown up in South Africa, where he lived under apartheid, about race in America, about race in that particular city that he uh, loves, so much. I, I, I think it's a powerful conversation worth looking at. We'll post the link or you can go to um johndickerson.com and find it there. Uh, it's also on YouTube. And then also there's an outtake in which I asked him about where he finds the joy in music. And if you do, if you like hearing people talk about creativity, only a little bit of it is in the piece that ran on on air, but about he goes, he has about four minutes about where he finds joy in music. And it's a um, uh, it's a lovely answer.
2: The best part on the cutting room floor, but John has saved it for masses.
1: <laughs> That's right. My chatter. This is this is going to be a disillusioning chatter. So, if you have small children in the room, pets, if you're an idealist, you may want to you may want to look away for a moment. So, uh, I remember r- loving Raiders of the Lost Ark. I really remember loving of the blockbusters of my youth and the kind of the. Jaws, Star Wars, E.T. universe that, that so defined uh, late 70s, early 80s, it's the only one that survived to my adulthood untarnished in my memory. It's, it's rollicking and funny and joyful. And so it was with great pleasure that I arranged a nice movie night last Friday night for me and my wife and our 10-year-old and a friend of his who's sleeping over to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, my God. That movie is a disaster. <laughs> It is the most disturbing racist movie I have seen in a really long time. I mean, you expect yeah, that maybe really a problem, that in movie. like, you know, movies from the 1940s. But holy moly, every non-white person is represented as an unruly savage or a superstitious coward. The one woman in the movie is given this an initial veneer. She's introduced with a veneer of sort of sassiness and brassiness and and, and uh, courage, but she quickly sheds that to become a screeching, pleading, pathetically needy uh, a caricature. Only people with any strength and fortitude in it are white guys, even the Nazis, um, who are all given this, this omnicompetence and bravery and propulsive force. The, there's one non-white character who is who, who heroic, who's helping an Egyptian uh, guy who's helping Indy. And he is emasculated. is utterly emasculated in a scene at the end of the movie, where the mere fact that that a white woman kisses him causes him to melt into this slobbering, addled mess. That just the the mere touch of a white woman on this man's body is is enough to to render him render him a a, a joke. It's embarrassing. It's like, I, thank God the world has changed. You watch and you're like, thank God the world has changed. This is this movie is an embarrassment. And and if you were thinking of showing it to your children, do not because it's a disgrace.
2: It's interesting cuz I also remembered really enjoying it and I think it's Harrison Ford his like swashbuckling character when I was a kid and I saw it that like brought me along and was super appealing and I just didn't think about all the other stuff and now all, everything else in the movie looms really large and Harrison Ford's charms are small.
3: You can go yeah. watch Lara Croft in uh, in Tomb Raider. Also I wonder and this is a shallow point uh, but uh, that's my role. Um the special effects and the, and what was what seemed beyond anything we'd be seen before all now mm. seems very, it doesn't uh, spark the wonder that it might have when you were seeing it, whenever it was. So it so it doesn't over. Uh, if there was something that could distract you from everything else, you said, David, even right. that you know, to to modernize just doesn't seem, um, you know, it either seems implausible or not that uh, yeah. impressive.
1: That's true. It's not it, it's not terrible. It's not it's not it doesn't look like uh you know some silent film from the 20s in that respect. The 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 effects are okay. It's also uh it, it was surprisingly violent. I had forgotten how violent it is. There is there's a lot less of the kind of playfulness than I remembered. It's it's very violent and very bloody and visually uh shows you a lot of stuff in a way that again surprised me given that it's it's a 40-year-old movie. So Anyway, don't see, see Raiders. Do not see Raiders. The kids didn't notice at all. The kids just liked it. The kids, none of that, none of the none of the racist part of it re- registered with them. So may, maybe.
2: Did you point it out or just let it go?
1: And we, we talked, we were pointing it out as it was going along, but they, just, they were just enjoying it. So they were Bolivia. like, wow, look oh, at all those snakes. Uh, so we also, of course, dear listeners, are collecting your listener chatters, some work of culture, some episodes, an article you read that you think is worthy of, of discussion at your cocktail party. And you've been tweeting those to us at, at SlateGabFest. It's a highlight of our week to get them. And there are a lot of good ones again this week. And I would like to call out one from Kathy Kearns at, at kkearns11542 on Twitter. And she points us to a story done by the StoryCorps, the public radio StoryCorps, um, about this strange and heartbreaking episode back in 1963 in Georgia, where the police arrested more than a dozen girls who were participating in a peaceful civil rights protest, a dozen girls who were 12 to 15 years old, and took them and held them in a stockade in another city for two months, didn't tell their parents where they'd taken them, didn't uh, f- f- file any charges against them, just took them away they were all african american girls took them away and just locked them in the stockade with essentially no toilet very little food no uh, sanitation no way for them to clean themselves it's a just it's fairly shocking it's fairly shocking even by the standards of the dismal standards of the civil rights movement so check it out on uh, storycore it's the story of the leesburg stockade girls the leesburg stockade girls that is our show for today GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of audio at Slate. You can follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest and tweet your chatter to us. Remember, we have a live show in Washington coming up on March 27th. Go to slate.com live to get tickets for that show. For Emily and John, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week.
5: Ever listen to podcasts with your kids? It's a great way to keep them entertained and engage their minds without relying on screens. I wanna tell you about a new kids history podcast hosted by me, Joy Dolo. It's called Forever Ago, and I teamed up with the producers of the award-winning kids' podcast, Brains On, to make it. Forever Ago dives into the amazing backstories of everyday stuff, like emojis, video games, and skateboards. We use games, skits, and kid co-hosts to keep the whole family engaged while teaching listeners to think critically about history. Along the way, we'll hear some incredible stories, like how a curious teenager revolutionized skateboarding. Gnarly. How alarm clocks used to just be people. Rise and shine. And how the poop emoji almost didn't happen. You can find Forever Ago on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.